Hello, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and your health. And today, I'm delighted to bring you part two of my two-part interview with Dr. Daniel P. Brown. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, I encourage you to go back to the previous episode and listen to that because that's the first 30 minutes or so of my hour and a half long interview with Dan. And then now we're going to jump into part two. This interview, as I said, is one of my favorite. It just gets deeper and deeper. We move on from the elephant path of concentration, which we talked about in the last episode. And Dan really unpacks the Heart Sutra for us. He talks about the neuroscience of awakening. He talks about something called simultaneous mind and the cosmic database. And he tells the story of the fat monk raiding the pantry at Nalanda, the famous legendary Buddhist university. And yeah, that's really just a smidgen of what's in the episode. It's fantastic. There's so much. It's so rich. If you're, uh, if you like to geek out on science, Dan really feathers the kind of neuroscience angle throughout the whole interview. If you're just in it for the deep dive into the Dharma, that's here too. That's the beauty of this interview. It really balances both so beautifully. So great. Let's dive in. And before we do, I wanted to remind you that Dan Brown is offering listeners of the One Mind podcast a special 25% discount on his peak performance concentration and meditation course. Just head on over to the show notes page for this episode over at aboutmeditation.com and click on the special discount link and use the coupon code Use the coupon code One Mind Podcast, all one word, One Mind Podcast. And that's how you can get the 25% discount. So definitely check that out. And now let's pick up where we left off in our previous episode, where Dan had just wrapped up giving us a brief summary of the elephant path of concentration. So without further ado, I give you part two of my interview with Daniel P. Brown. So that's a little synopsis of the nine stages of the elephant path of concentration. And so this is what you teach, that, that you, would you lead these executives and judges through that in your two-day seminar? Yes. And how then, kind of crossing over into more traditional practice and training, how does that relate to, say, when you're beginning to teach someone Mahamudra the, on the Mahamudra path, where does that, where does that fit? You start with concentration training, and the end point of concentration training is whatever the mind intends. You operate out of that field of awareness rather than operating out of thought mode. But there are other things that will interfere with the practice, and that's where we introduce emptiness training. And emptiness training, in Western terms, is similar to what we would call constructivist psychology. That what the mind does, the ordinary mind does, it constructs new experiences. It makes representations. That's its job description. So let's take the sense of self, psychological sense of self. I like to think that Dan always existed. But Danness is a construction of mind. And child observationalists tell us that the psychological sense of self develops in the second year of life, roughly equivalent with the development of concrete, uh, with the representational thinking or symbolic thinking. So when I can represent, I can develop a representation for self in about 18 to 24 months. And that self-representation is useful in everyday life. It becomes a central organizing principle. Mm. So I can organize my daily experience around Dan. And that's useful. And it has some consciency to it, so that even though I go to fly all over the world or, and I go to different places and I have different roles, I still feel like Dan. There's a constancy to that experience. Mm. So far, so good. 
But what Buddhism says is the trouble with representing is that once we develop those representations, like the psychological sense of self, we have a tendency to reify them. We tend to make them too real or too solid. I don't remember that Dan's a representation. I see Dan as all too real and I take him way too seriously. Mm -hmm. And I learn to operate out of Dan as most of my daily life. So I'm operating out of self mode. And from a Buddhist perspective, operating and getting caught up and dwelling out of those, in this case, self-representation, clouds over my real nature, which is operating out of that larger field of awakened awareness. So each one of these structures of mind becomes like a cloud that clouds over the real nature of the mind. So when we practice emptiness, we're not getting rid of anything. We're seeing beyond its representational nature. And we learn to shift our basis of operation. So I'm not operating out of Dan anymore. I'm operating out of the field of awareness, the larger field of awareness. And the whole path of that part of the path is captured in the mantra, or the very popular Heart Sutra. And in Sanskrit, the mantra goes like this. Gate, gate, paragate, paradisam, gate, bodhisvaha. There's your whole path. Hmm. The literal translation is gone, gone, gone way beyond, gone way, way beyond. Ooh, what a realization. <laughs> wow. What it means is that in our everyday, ordinary experience, we get so caught up in thought, we over-identify with thought. But if I learn to concentrate and thought elaboration winds down and eventually stops, then I can see what it's like to operate out of the field of awareness and the intention of awareness rather than operating out of thought mode. That's the first gone. Awareness gone beyond thought. But then I find that I'm still operating out of self when I'm meditating the self and doing the meditation and observing the results of the meditation. But if I do emptiness of self, I don't get rid of the self. I go beyond it and I shift my basis of operation so I'm no longer operating out of dandness, but I'm operating out of that larger field of awareness. That's the second gate. Awareness itself gone beyond self-representation. Then I find that that awareness that I'm operating out of is unstable because it seems to come and go in time, the convention of time. But then with emptiness of time and space meditation, I can open up a level of awareness that's timeless and changeless on the one hand and truly limitless and boundless on the other hand. There's a huge shift in perspective. There's a much larger field of timeless, boundless awareness. I learned to shift my base of operation out of operating in things coming and going in time to the, the larger field of timeless, boundless awareness. And that's a much bigger shift, and that's why it's linguistically marked paragate, gone way beyond the convention of time to ocean-like, changeless, boundless awareness. And everything and everyone is interconnected within that larger field, which is profound. It's what we call simultaneous mind. Everything is connected and we all inf influence each other within that same field. That will change your ethics if you understand that as a direct experience. Mm -hmm. But there's one more cloud. And that is we tend to localize our individual consciousness within that larger field. And we tend to think dualistically so that I observe an event like a sound arising somewhere else in the field from someplace observing that. So I introduce duality, and I, I don't operate out of the totality of the field, but it says I localize myself somewhere within that field. And with certain special instructions, I can learn to take a certain perspective that I can shift my base of operation out of that localization and become the entirety of the field itself, that limitless, timeless, brilliant, awakened awareness. Love, that is my true nature. And that's what we, those in special instructions are sometimes called crossing over instructions in Dzogchen, or they're called non-meditation meditation instructions in Mahamudra. There are different versions of them, but they all do the same thing. They help you to shift out of operating out of ordinary mind in this localization to operating out of being the unbounded wholeness, which is lucidly brilliant, loving awareness. So that's, that's the first part of the path to open up the awakened awareness and to get a taste of that. However stable it may be at the beginning, it changes everything. And we did a study on the neuroscience of awakening a couple of years ago because we have a number of students who could do that. So I had a student who was in 
neuroscientist, and he introduced me to Judd Brewer, who's a... Yeah, I know Judson Brewer. Judd is an MD, PhD, who used to run the mindfulness neuroscience lab at UMass Medical School, but has since moved to Brown University. And he took the course, and at the same time that Bruce Fetzer took the course, so I talked with Bruce and Judd and said, why don't you... What if we put a proposal for a study on studying the neuroscience of awakening? Would you be interested in that? And the Fetzer Foundation said yes. So we gave 30 subjects to Judd who had a taste of awakening, but it was not stable so that we could scan them in the ordinary mind and scan them in the awakened mind and look at the difference. We also scanned them when they were doing ocean and waves practice, which is this limitless awareness before, before awakening. And what we found is that when they shifted to this timeless, boundless awareness and held that perspective, they activated the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the concentration center of the brain. But the unusual finding is that we found that the frequency of the amplitude was gamma activity. That means that all the cells in the ACC are firing simultaneously. And we interpreted that to mean that they were holding the view very intensely to open up this field of awareness. And then when they, in addition to that, when they shifted from ordinary mind to awakened mind, in all 29 subjects, one of the subjects that equipment didn't work for that day, but for all 29 of the subjects, we found that the marker for opening up awakening was that they sh they activated an area of the parietal system that we typically associate with shifting from a more local to a more global awareness, and much larger awareness. But the unusual finding, again, was all 29 subjects had gamma activity. It means that in that region of interest, all the cells were firing it simultaneously. So that area of the brain was very awake, if you mm. want to say that. Mm. So we got a very unique marker for awakened mind. And it makes perfect sense. You shift perspectives to operating out of being the unbounded wholeness with lucidly bright, loving, awakened awareness. What what would be, say, a normal scan if someone was just concentrating on a normal activity? What would that look like? The ACC. They may activate the ACC partially, or they may not. depends on how concentrated they are. Yeah. Heightened means heightened attentiveness. John Groselier did a study on hypnotic inductions, and he had a hypnotic induction, and he compared it to two other conditions. One was just sitting quietly, and the other was mental arithmetic doing in the head while they were sitting quietly. And neither the mental arithmetic or the sitting quietly activated the ACC, only the hypnotic induction did. Mm. So heightened attentive means heightened attentiveness. It's a cut above normal paying attention. And that's what we expect in concentration meditation. With the peak performance workshop, is that when you described moving beyond the basic concentration, is that kind of the end point with the peak performance seminars? Or do you explicit? Well, sometimes. It depends on the context. Yeah. Because sometimes for certain executives in certain meetings emphasize creativity. And nowadays what's happening, particularly in Silicon Valley, is using microdosing with hallucinogens to emphasize creativity, which is a rather crude way of doing it. Hmm. But if you open up that that level of mind that's what we call simultaneous mind, where it's a limitless, timeless awareness and everything is contained within that field of limitless awareness and everything is interconnected within that field, that's your source of creativity. For example, many years ago, about 40 years ago, Jack Englund and myself gave Rorschach ink blocks to people at various stages of meditation. Before they meditated, they saw content like bats, butterflies, people in the in the ink blots. When they got deeply concentrated, they didn't see any content anymore. They just saw ink because they'd stopped thinking. Hmm. So they could spend as long as the cards engaging the color, the shape, the shading, but they didn't make it into anything because they'd more or less stopped thinking. When we got to the simultaneous mind, we had to stop the Rorschach at 10 hours. They gave us infinite content. And if I gave it to the Rorschach, the next day they gave us 10 hours again. Infinite content, because it's the source of creativity. So that's the source for you want to tap into. Mm. It's not hard to teach that. For example, all the sutras are written in that state. 
So if you want to write a sutra, I'll tell you a story about that. There's a Shanti Deva was a monk at the height of Nalanda University. And he wrote one of the most famous books and popular books in Tibetan Buddhism, Indo-Tibetan Buddhism called the Bodhishara Avatara, the Entering the Path to Enlightenment. And he was very overweight and he was raiding the kitchen at the Nalanda all the time. So a number of monks complained to the abbot that he wasn't lazy and he wasn't doing his meditations. So he was called forth the abbot and he had to prove that he was using his time usefully other than eating at the Nalanda. <laughs> so he sat down and did what we call a tokchik, a single-minded thought. He thought about a topic to write about, which was an overview of the path. And he went into deep concentration where the thought dropped away, but the imprint of the thought didn't. And it had influence, repeated influence, because it's a single-minded thought. And then he opened up the simultaneous mind where everything is, all knowledge is contained within that. And that that influence continued to pull out of that database everything about the path. And as he transitioned out of the meditation, what we call the jeptop, as you transition out of the meditation, it was like channeling. He, he wrote down, without thinking about it, automatically wrote down 10 Sanskrit chapters in rhyme verse, which is very hard to do, in a complete model of the path without any editing needed. All the sutras are written like that. If you look at the Heart Sutra, the Shariputra asks the Avalokiteshvara about the nature of the mind, and he says, thanks for asking. Here's the answer. So that mm -hmm. question was the Tokchik. All sutras are written in that state. It's, they're not written in ordinary mind. They're written in the state of simultaneous mind, where, which is the cosmic database. And you pull out of that the right influence. So you get everything you need about that topic. You can teach Western executives to develop that same state of mind. And it works. Wow, that's very interesting. And so you've had a positive response to teaching that. To the yes. Things. Yes. Mm. So maybe, maybe we could shift more fully into talking about the Mahamudra teachings, and also, well, there are a few things. Why? What is mind only? What does that? What does that mean in terms of that? That is the name for your courses and stuff. What is the significance of that? It's a stage of practice when you see. All external events is really the creation of lively awareness. So everything is the dance and magical display of awareness. As you train yourself to see everything in terms of awareness. So it's not a substantial world that's out there. It's all a world of representation, constructions of mind. And you see beyond the constructions of mind to the deeper field of awareness. Hmm. There's a particular school of thought in Buddhism that represented that. Gotcha. And where do you introduce that to students on the in, in the well, path? We're teaching emptiness practice the second third of the week. Hmm. There's three maps here. There's the stages of the practice that go from the very beginning to a taste of awakening, however unstable it is. Then there's a whole other set of teachings that help you to refine the awakening and stabilize it. So. If you set up a certain view, which we call the view of lion's gaze, or crossing over view, whatever you want to call it, and you shift your basis of operation out of an ordinary mind to awakened mind, your task is to set up that view and the conditions and set that up in the right way on the pillow frequently, shift to awakening for longer and longer duration, and do it more immediately so you can it becomes a learned pathway and you can mm -hmm. drop out the steps. Mm -hmm. And the sign of progress that you're looking for is that just the intention to set it up shifts you out of ordinary mind to awakened mind. And you know what to look for. Mm. You recognize that shift. Yes. Then once you do that, we have what we call drewa mixing practice, where you immediately get off the pillow and engage in some activity. And the task is to see how you can sustain awakening off the pillow. When I was first learning that practice with His Holiness Men Retreating, he would have me sit in front of his office. And he would have a constant audience of people all day long. And my task was to stay in awakened mind and we converse with them and maintain the awakening while I talk with them and make conversation with them. Or while I was translating on my computer and thinking, and I had to maintain awakening while I was thinking. 
And after a while, you maintain awakening on and off the pillow at all times. And there's no more clear boundary between sitting and meditating and taking it off the pillow. It's all the same state of unfolding automatically, including in mixing into dreams and deep sleep so that you awake all the time. That finishes the second map when you have awakening all the time. And then when you open up that vast expanse and hold that view of limitless, boundless, timeless awareness and let everything arise within that field of awareness and see what everything arises as lively awareness, all thoughts are lively awareness, all emotions are lively awareness, all sounds, all sights, the body, body sensations, smells, tastes, it's all lively awareness. It's a continuous, uninterrupted flow of liveliness of awakened awareness. Everything you experience. Yeah, and you hold both views simultaneously then. You hold the view of the limitless expanse of this field of awareness and the uninterrupted liveliness of what occurs in it. We call that the simultaneous view. Then you let everything arise within it without engaging anything. You just let it run its course. And if the mental engagement is what causes karmic memory traces to form, and every time we engage something, we make a new memory trace. So we have millions of memory traces in our reservoir, what's called storehouse consciousness. But if you set up this view in the right way, after you have more or less continuous awakening, so that the view becomes the simultaneous pair of the limitless expanse of awakened awareness and the liveliness of whatever unfolds within it uninterruptedly, and you let everything run its own course, you stop forming new karmic memory traces. And it forces the mind to release the whole reservoir of karmic memory traces automatically. Mm. So that whatever comes up, is, if you don't engage it, it immediately disappears like riding on water. Or like snowflakes melting in a great ocean immediately when they fall. So you watch everything drop away. And what it does is it exhausts over time the reservoir of negative karmic memory traces. It takes about seven or eight years to do that on the average, doing it 24 hours a day. Once it becomes an automatic process, it's fully automatic, so it just goes by itself. You do it all the time. And the outcome, you can cut down the out, the time frame from seven or eight years to about two years if you do advanced practices like inner fire practice or the bypassing visions simultaneous to doing that practice. And at some point, you have exhausted the reservoir of all karmic negative memory traces. And since those negative memory traces mask the positivity of the mind, what flourishes all at once is 80 or 85, depending on how you count them, 85 positive states of a Buddha mind. That attainment is called Sangye, the complete exhaustion of all negative states and the flourishing of all positive states. Mm-hmm. I happen to think that that state is important for mental health. What would we like to operate on is continuous positivity all of the time and no negative states. So we now have about 60 people who can do that relatively well, and we have a grant from the FETSA Foundation to study the neuro-circuitry markers of Sangye. We're going to start running subjects shortly. Wow. We'll do that again in conjunction with the FETSA Foundation and John Brewer. Wow. Thank you to the FETSA Foundation. That's amazing. Dan, can you... All right, so we've talked... You've kind of talked about these three maps. You've, you've talked in detail about the concentration... The third map is called the Path of Liberation, and it starts by the key that opens up that gateway to the third map is Sangye. Every moment, self-arising, self-liberating, self-arising, self-liberating, self-arising, self-liberating. And then at some point, you achieve the end point of that, which is the complete exhaustion of all negative states and the flourishing of all positive states. Then, by that point, you, you can open up what are called the enlightened Buddha bodies, Dharmakaya is limitless, infinite, stable awareness, awakened awareness space. That should be pretty stable at that point. And as you purify the mind more, you see that there's the world more and more appears. And the ordinary world is not an ordinary world anymore. This is a sacred world of the mandala. The Buddha feels on some place you fly off to. They're always right here. But we don't perceive them because our conceptual mind interprets sense data and clouds it over. But once I purify the mind thoroughly, all I see is a sacred world of the mandala. And there's no ordinary world anymore. I live in the world of sacredness. And that's called the Sambhogakaya. And once that's completely stable, I start to concern myself with the fact that most people don't see this sacred world that I now live within all of the time. And that plants the seed of aspiration, the wish, the sincere wish 
that everybody see the sacred world that that I now live in all of the time. And that aspiration gets stronger and stronger, and at some point it explodes into a million enlightened intentions to help people along the path in various ways, and that's the mnemonicaya. And then once those three things happen successively, it happens, they all come all at once in a stable way, and that's full enlightenment. And then your job description is endless enlightened activities helping guiding people along the path. Game over at that point. Mm-hmm. So we have now translated most of those teachings. We're trying to put them in a form that on all three maps that will work for Westerners. We're about 80% finished with this project. My wish is to leave behind a complete set of teachings that work for Westerners all the way, all the way through enlightenment by the time I leave this form body. Mm. That's the plan. That's a beautiful and honorable plan. I would love to ask, Dan, could you speak a little bit to... So now you've kind of outlined the maps. Can you talk about... like, so? How long have you been teaching people this path? Well, we taught concentration back as far as 19, early 1970s, but mm-hmm. the whole path for the first map that goes from beginning to awakening since 1970, since 1986. If you could give our audience a sense, like what kind of, what kind of transformations have you seen in your students over time? Yeah, how have you seen them change? Along what timeline have you seen them change? What, love it if you could give people a sense of that. One thing that really comes through with, when you're talking is sort of the, the precision and the methodical approach to transformation and well it's hard to authenticate awakening and we say that if awakening is accompanied by moving your heart if it's accompanied by compassion by devotion by gratitude then you're probably on the right track Hmm. but some people have a need to see themselves as awakened when they're not so it's either operates out of conceptual mind or operating out of self and self-importance those things, uh, the self doesn't get awakened. You get, you'll go beyond the self, and then you awaken. This, you can't think yourself into awakening. You have to move beyond all thought. Hmm. Those the first two gates in the Heart Sutra. So some people have the need to see themselves as awakened, and it's not authentic. But if it's authentic, we say that a couple things happen. It moves the heart, and then Rahab Tuku, who I sometimes teach with, a Nyingma Lama, says that when you find yourself in the most difficult life circumstances, if your realization deepens that you're on the right track, but if it falls apart, it was likely to be conceptual. Hmm. So the test is when you face the most difficult circumstances in your life and the awakening deepens in that process. Hmm. So those are things, the guidelines that we use to judge the authenticity of awakening. Hmm. But mostly it means that it it moves your heart. Mm -hmm. People think more compassionately and they get out of self-mode if we learn any one thing about spiritual practice the most important lesson is the following self-importance is not terribly important self-importance is not terribly important Mm. see you mentioned the bond tradition earlier can you talk to us a little bit about what what is the bond tradition and why is it significant and why have you devoted so much energy to it and yeah put can you just open that up for us well the bond tradition started as a shamanastic tradition the original shamans and it goes back about lineage goes back eighteen thousand years and there are nine stages of bond the first four called causal bond and they have to do with what probably would be traditional shamanistic practices. But the ninth stage are the Dzogchen practices, great completion practices. The other lineage in Buddhism that has Dzogchen practices is the Nyingmas. They also have their own version of great completion practices. But I personally found that the bond are more open and, and more flexible in working with Westerners. And the Nyingmas have been less open about that. Mm-hmm. That's just my own personal experience with that. Mm-hmm. 
So when I teach with Enigma Rahab Tulku, he'll teach certain things to Westerners, but not other things. Because most Westerners haven't gone through the requirement of the 100,000 preliminaries. But His Holiness Menry Treasing in the bond allows me to develop a certain set of eligibility requirements. So he's workshop, and rather than 100,000 preliminaries, he's been creative in how to teach Westerners. And if they meet those requirements, then he'll teach at any level of the bond. So they've been more generous in giving us the entire map. So it's part of the, my interest is because they are making they're making their teachings accessible. Mm. I think from their perspective, they understand that if they don't do it, they're going to lose it all. So that's pra pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So His Holiness showed me just about everything along the path, including some of the advanced practices like inner fire practice and the bypassing visions. And and just before he died, he gave me all the detailed pith instructions for full enlightenment and told me what text to translate to get a complete set of teachings so he left everything behind for us mm. so that's why mm. and, and what when you say what what are pith instructions brief right to the point instructions that work that have been proven they go that we say we pass them down from heart to heart from generation to generation because they work they open up the mind it all depends on, we say the view is the meditation. It's how we set up the perspective that you take. That means all the difference in the world. You don't just sit down and meditate. It's how you look at the meditation that matters. Hmm. So you've got to get the right instructions for how to view it correctly. And every stage of the practice has a different view. So the context for practice is as important as the practice itself. The explanation of the practice and how it's taught is, important, is very important. Hmm. Can you say a little bit about the difference between when you might, um, I don't want to frame this, which do you feel is a better approach for people looking for contentment in their lives? Would you say kind of dealing through a psychological model or dealing through or, or kind of developing through say the Mahamudra path how, how do those sort of address different aspects of Western the Western sensibility and and the the challenges of being a thriving contented human being well, in traditional Buddhist and Bon practice, you do a set of 100,000 preliminary practices, and that sets the motivation correct, and it also shifts the balance from negative to positive states to more positive states. Most people in their daily life have about four to five to one negative states over positive states in our daily spontaneous unfolding experience of mind. So the preliminary practice is designed to shift that balance so you don't play out all your stuff on the pillow. And also to implant the views and to set up the, what's called building the vessel, set up the mind in the right way so you can get the maximum out of the meditation practice. But most Westerners can't relate to the preliminary practices in traditional Tibetan teaching. Our version of preliminaries is psychotherapy where you shift the balance I'm going to give you an example of one of the things that is done to to develop positivity in preliminary practices in Buddhism in Bon is to offer up a mandala. You offer up all the good things in the world, and you develop positive qualities by doing that. Most Westerners can't do that, but if I have you generate positive emotional states, in terms of Western psychotherapy, most Westerners can do that. So we need to develop a set of practices that make the mind fit for meditation in Western terms. And good psychotherapy will do that. It covers similar ground to the preliminary practices if it's mm -hmm. done right. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that most of us can relate to the way that Buddhists develop that. So we need to develop a culture-specific version of preliminaries. Some lamas, like Tenzin Wangyal in the Bon tradition, has experimented with doing that. He calls it a series of commitments. You make a public declaration to change 10 things in your relational life, 10 things about yourself and 10 things about your lifestyle. And then you, in the group, you commit to following those things and really changing those things. It's a Western way of trying to do the preliminaries. Mm. So some people and some lamas are thinking creatively about this. But you, you need to cover that ground and 
minimally it means setting aside developing motivation enough so you actually take spiritual practice seriously and make it a priority in your life number one that you shift the ratio of unfolding states so it's more positive than negative that you move beyond the sense of self and self preoccupations and that you get the right perspectives and views implanted in your mind stream so you can actually do the practice all that is making the mind fit to get the best out of meditation if you just sit down and meditate without doing any of that you what all the psychological problems you're going to play out on the pillow or with your teacher mm. and it's not going to go anywhere useful mm. and you mentioned at a certain point it may have been in the context of the pith instructions or it might have even been earlier but you were talking about how you often work with people what was the it was the pointing out that progress along the path doesn't involve sort of longer periods of sitting meditation and that i i'd love it if you could elaborate on that because it seems it seems so different in terms of contemplative work than a lot of sort of eastern paths which yeah i'll, I'll mention something about that but i want to go back to the previous topic because it's important yes because what we've tried to do is take the best of things that are important for preliminary practices for westerners and put them in a form that works for westerners so on our website, Mind Only, there's a two-day course in peak performance. One of those days is concentration training. Then there's a week-long immersion course. And in the week-long immersion course, there's all the necessary exercises that we would do for emotional growth, for self-development, for relational development, and everything that would be covered in preliminary practices you can do in a week. So all the exercises are passed on in a form that we could use them. Hmm. So that is available now to Westerners in mm. the way that we thought it would be best for Westerners. Now getting to the question you're now asking about trouble with, I did outcome studies for 10 years mostly in Western Burmese mindfulness students. And what we found was that people weren't advancing very much along the path. And I concluded that that was in part a problem with the style of teaching. Students go for a 10-day retreat or a two-week retreat. Every two or three days in a group of 10 people, they'll go for an interview. They'll say one or two things about their practice, and the teacher will say, fine, keep on going. That's not teaching. Because what we found is that many of these students will make develop a lot of bad habits in meditation, and the meditation gets pretty sloppy, and no one's ever correcting them. Whereas in contrast, in the pointing out style, you use the relationship you have to go over in on a regular basis, review the teachings with the student, make sure they're staying on the right track. And if they're not, you say, this is where you're going off track. And you point it out to them. So meditation is best to watch out for all the bad habits that develop during meditation. And you need a teacher who's going to point it out to you and you need to develop your own metacognitive awareness and intelligence to see when you're going off track. But if you just sit quietly on your own and you do that for long periods of time the likelihood is very high you're going to make a lot of bad habits and go off track mm. that's why we don't emphasize it if you look at there was a study on concentration meditation done on Richie Davidson's lab and they found that they looked at beginning and advanced concentrators and the, both groups activated the anterior cingulate cortex the ACC but only advanced meditators activated the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex which is metacognitive awareness which means that they were constantly being aware of their own state of mind and monitoring it to correct it to stay on track. And whether they were in the beginning advanced group, it had nothing to do with duration of practice. It had to do with whether they trained the metacognitive awareness to self-correct their problems and habits. And the pointing out context helps develop that metacognitive awareness. Because it's relationally based. You use the teacher to point it out. Hmm. When I started teaching with Rahab Tulku, he said, look, you can't just do retreats. You have to follow the students on a regular basis. And I thought to myself, duh, in a relational style of teaching, why didn't I think of that? Mm. So we started following the students, and then we take notes on the students' progress, and we keep them on track that way, and it works. Every four or five months, we follow them. For just a half an hour, that's all it takes. In that half an hour, you're making the adjustments. You can make the adjustments and make sure they're staying on track. Can you speak a little bit also, I've heard you talk about this is a, it's, it's a slight tangent, but I, I found it really interesting when you talked about 
the significance of developing metacognitive awareness in children and why it's important and how you can help children develop that capacity. Can you can can you speak to that just a little bit? Sure. The field of metacognition began in 1976 with John Flavel at Stanford, who was a Piagetian scholar. And he defined it, unfortunately, as thinking about thinking. And that initiated two fields. One was it had profound influence on problem solving and particularly education. So nowadays, you have to illustrate all the steps in your thinking and solving a math problem. You can get the answer wrong, and if you illustrate the steps carefully, you get a good grade. Mm. Because what has been well established is that people who train themselves to think metacognitively about the steps and strategies they're using to solve a problem solve it more efficiently. They don't keep repeating this mistaken ways of solving the problem. So it works. Mm. And the second influence it's had is in terms of psychotherapy. Because we know that there are some classes of patients who are not very metacognitive. And Howard Steele, who I've done some collaborative research with at Tavistock and at the New School in New York, Howard developed a scale and his colleagues at Tavistock developed a scale called Reflective Function Scale, which measures the level of metacognitive reflection on your own state of mind on a one to nine scale. And most people in the general population are mildly metacognitive. They score about four, 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 4.5 or 5 on that scale. People who've been in years of psychotherapy score eight and nine on that scale, the maximum scores, because they train themselves to think about their own states of mind very carefully. But Howard told me that they never found a patient with a personality disorder diagnosis or a dissociative disorder diagnosis scored above three on that scale, the reflective mm -hmm. function scale. Mm -hmm. they're, they're remarkably unreflective. So they developed a whole therapy based on that called mentalization-based therapy to train people to be more metacognitive, and it works. Because about in the good outcome studies, in about two years of training metacognition, about 70% of those people will no longer have a personality disorder diagnosis or a dissociative disorder diagnosis. Mm. In other words, training metacognition, training the capacity to be aware of your own state of mind has an organizing effect on that mind. So it, 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 it does better. It organizes itself, organizes itself. So we find that the same thing is true for training metacognition and mindfulness in, in, in meditators. Because meditators need to be aware of their state of mind in order to be able to keep on track with the meditation. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they develop all sorts of bad habits. There's a Sufi tale that says, a log sits very quietly on a woodpile for years, but logs never realize God. So don't sit like a log. Sit with metacognitive intelligence. <laughs> in other words, just sitting there isn't good enough. You have to yeah. monitor your state and, and, and bring out the best of that state all the time. Mm and know how to bring out the best of that state. Otherwise, you just developed a lot of bad habits. And you develop what Charles Rinpoche calls conceptual meditation, just to have a lot of ideas about meditating, but you're not really meditating. Mm. So coming back to uh, the Tibetans, can you speak to just the path more general in the context of Tibetan Buddhism? It seems like Compared to some other paths, they have an the the Tibetans have a sort of extraordinary focus on awakening, and just these these teachings that are so refined. Can you speak a little bit to like how these teachings compare to say other schools of Buddhism, and also their efficacy in in really kind of helping Westerners wake up. Well, there are, in Buddhism, there are nine vehicles. The first are the Shravaka and Pradeka Buddhas, and those are the ones that, are, that emphasize the realization of, for the self. The third is the Bodhisattva path. Then there are three other Tantra vehicles, and then there are the three higher vehicles, and the highest is Dzogchen. And Dzogchen is the one that I think more fairly emphasizes the, the single-mindedly awakening. Mm-hmm. But we tend to gravitate towards Dzogchen practices because, well, the way I look at that is Westerners aren't going to do 100,000 preliminaries. Mm. But 
I was talking with his holiness men retreating him. I said, we do it backwards in the West. We don't emphasize the preliminaries. We just go after awakening. And if people have a taste of awakening, it will move their heart. Then they'll be more opening. They're more open to doing the preliminary practices at that point. And he thought about it. And he said, I like that. Mm. He was flexible about it. So that's how I got my Tibetan name, which is Rick Bakyande, which means the one who's single-minded about awakening. Mm. So we emphasize awakening because it's the confluence of all the teachings. If you have that experience, even a little taste of it, it changes everything. Yeah. Moves your heart in a big way. So that's why we emphasize it. Gets you out of self self preoccupation. Mm. And since we live in a world where people are getting increasingly self absorbed and selfish, I think it's a necessary teaching for the West right now. And on one of your level one retreats, your first level retreats, do you take people up to that taste of yes. awakening? Yes. And about, we've kept statistics, about one, one out of three people who take the retreat for the first time will get a taste of awakening, however unstable it is. It's not bad. That's great. That seems pretty incredible to me. Then there's a whole other set of teachings on how to stabilize it. That's the second map teachings that I talked about earlier. And is that what you start to introduce in this in the level two retreat? No, the level two is a, a different version of the level one that contains more compassion meditations and different, more Mahamudra rather than sutra-based instructions for getting to awakening. It's a different set of teachings to do the same thing. Hmm. The level 3A course is what stabilizes awakening. It does seem like sort of, given like generally our kind of goal-oriented Western achievement-focused culture, at least in my experience and having been with different teachers, it, it seems like there's the possibility with going for enlightenment that you can... Awakening, not enlightenment. That's a, that's a further... Oh, awakening. That that it could become a very almost like ironically a sort of a selfish or a a kind of self centered preoccupation. How how do you mitigate against that? By letting a foundation with compassion. Hmm. What does that look like? How... There's a whole series of compassion meditations that we do. There are two broad categories. One has to do with compassion for the suffering of others like visualization of Buddha of compassion, which is Avalokiteshvara, or Chen Rezik in Tibetan, or Tongling practice, taking in all the suffering of, of the world and giving out loving kindness instead. And the other is called compassion with respect to common humanity, taking a perspective that we all want the same things out of life, and all even our enemies are people who want the same things out of life. So you, you practice common humanity compassion. Hmm. So there are all sorts of versions of this. Mm -hmm. we offered a range of them that work for Westerners and you find them to be do you see the efficacy of that yeah what we want to go is beyond self-importance in one way or another mm -hmm. the self doesn't awaken and as long as they're operating out of a strong sense of self and they want awakening it's not going to happen mm -hmm. but if they have strong emptiness and they see the self as just a mere structure of mind they can go beyond it mm -hmm. so there are methods within the tradition to help you move beyond all that stuff Dan, how do you feel about like, there definitely seems to me in the West a sort of allergy to sort of more hierarchical uh, relationships, student-teacher relationships that only seems to be getting stronger in time. But it seems obvious that having a hierarchical relationship in terms of a lineage and a, and a teaching it's just baked in there. How, how do you, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? The it's not easy. Yeah. Not easy in the West. Difficult. And because, partly because there have been so many flawed teachers in the West. Yeah, I mean, I had a very dogmatic teacher. I mean, I don't know if you, how much you knew Andrew Cohen, but yeah. something he, about it, yeah. Yeah, he was very authoritarian. So that's the problem. So it's hard for people to trust when they get legitimate lineage teachings. 
so difficult. Yeah. And is that, I mean, it seems like lineage itself is potentially a mitigating factor in that. Cause yeah, because of some checks and balance. Yeah. The trouble with a lot of Western teachers is they're self-realized. They may be, have legitimate realizations, but they don't represent lineages. There's no checks and balances of what mm -hmm. they teach. Mm -hmm. I only teach what I'm asked to teach. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. And I review it a lot. Like, memory is clear with reading minds. I remember one time, every time I go to visit him, he would immediately make some comment on my state of mind. And one time I visited him, he said, you're doing a lot of teaching, watch out for the spiritual pride. I said, busted, thank you. I find that very useful. Hmm. <laughs> That's just amazing. He busted me all the time. I loved it. So you're saying he would really just genuinely, like you would be totally transparent to him? He could just read what was in your mind? Totally. At first, that was a little weird. I remember going to see him when I first started working with him. He said, what are you reading all these Trek Joe books for? He knew exactly what I was reading. Hmm. And he said, I said, because different people need different instructions. He said, that's a good reason. Okay. And another time he said, busted. He said, too much pride. So I found that at first a little disconcerting. And then after a while, it was a great source of comfort. I would show up in his room and he said, now do this. And I would just do it. Mm. As you could see right away where I was. Yeah. Was very, I, yeah. Very much a blessing. At that time. Yes. Um, yeah. I could see once you trust that context, it would, it would, you could just surrender. So how do you relate to that? the sort of mythic context in Tibetan Buddhism where, you know, there, there seemed to be a lot of these, exactly this example, the, that almost like these sort of special powers that these teachers manifest. And I know maybe that like harkens back to the shamanic context in which, you know, that, that fused with Buddhism, but like, it, I've heard a lot about it. And what do you, how do you relate to that? Um, I know not it's not, it's not terribly interested in all that because you right. get fascinated with all that stuff. So it, yeah. it becomes an attachment to states. So I'm not terribly interested in most of that, but I'm glad to have been a recipient of that because it, it was helpful for him to see clearly what I needed and to move me along the path. I have to say that I advanced with him more than those 10 years I had with him, or 12 years I had with him, mm. more than any other teacher I've ever had. Mm. That says a lot. Yeah. I've never had a teacher like that before. What is Tibet like? I've never, I've, can you speak about Tibet and the culture? I've not been to old Tibet. I went to what they, in the redoing of the geography. That We went to old Tibet, but it was partly we. Rahab's monastery, and it was in Sichuan. Hmm. It's calm. It's eastern Tibet. It's hmm. cowboy country, and uh, it's beautiful. Hmm. And that area is very different because there's open practice there, whereas in central Tibet, where the Dalai Lama once had a presence, is still very much a police state. Hmm. So it depends on where you go, but it's not. Most of the Tibetan teachers are scattered around the world now, so I haven't had a strong need to go to old Tibet. It would break my heart anyway to see what's mm. happened there. You have been making efforts to sort of, and you've alluded to this with the curation of the translations and whatnot, but you've been leading this effort to preserve the Bon tradition. And, and can you speak more about that? Well, the. Some of your efforts. There's four Dzogchen lineages in Bonn. One of them is called the Oral Tradition from Zhangzheng Transmission. And the main texts in that are the Bypassing Visions text, which is called the Six Lamps. That's now out in print. We have that in the four commentaries to it. And the companion text to that is 21 Nails. It's 21 Perspectives on the Natural State of the Mind. So those two are out. 21 Nails will be out next week. Mm -hmm. Amazon has them all. Mm -hmm. And then the other lineage is the Autry lineage, uh, 
step-by-step instructions to the practical guide to the final state of ah. And the Atri system started as a lesson book of 80 sessions that you do a week one and from beginning all the way up to full enlightenment in 80 sessions. And over the years, it got cut down to 14 sessions. So we translated the 14-session version of that, made a long commentary on how it works in English, hmm. and made the made a translation of the root text and the commentary both. That's out in print. Hmm. And then... I'm happy to say that the advanced yogi and hermitage yogi text is out in print. It's called the Self-Arising Threefold Embodiment of Enlightenment. That contains 11 texts, an extensive commentary on the Atri texts, and then other texts like Bypassing Visions and Dark Retreat Manual and Solo Inner Fire Practice and Consort Inner Fire Practice and other, other highly advanced teachings. That's now out in print. What we have still coming out is there's a book that will come out in January on the training children and paying attention and concentration training for children. There's a book on the rainbow body teachings, how to dissolve the body upon dying into into rainbow light. I'm waiting on a scientific. We 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 think that sometimes great masters leave behind relics. And the relics can have an influence, an ongoing influence on physical reality. So Menry gave the relics to me, and I gave them to science to see what whether they they still have an influence on physical reality. And we've shown that. Now we're trying to find out what the relics are made of, whether they're made of something on the periodic table, or whether they're made of some non-ordinary substance. Wow. So I'm waiting for the scientific results of that. Wow. And then uh, there's a massive work by. A Bon Lama, Shadza Trashi Gyalson. There's an overview of, it's a big overview of everything about Dzogchen, and I'm, we're about two-thirds of the way through that at the moment, and I'll finish it up next summer. That'll be the last of the translations I was asked to do. Mm. So that's what we've done so far. Beautiful. So you mentioned the the book on concentration concentration training. It's called Attention Training and, and, and Development and Training of Attention in Children and Adolescents. Can you give us a little summary of that? It's an overview of attention development from early childhood up to adulthood. Then there's a chapter on all the distractions of paying attention, the types of ways of paying attention, including all the stuff about the media exposure. Then there's a chapter, a third chapter on training attention and what's been done, mostly with mindfulness and some some concentration training. Then we make an argument for why concentration training is the main practice to train. And then we go through four levels of training according to developmental age for early concrete operational, early pre-operational kids from four to six-year-olds, late pre-operational kids from six to eight, concrete operational kids from eight to 12, and then formal operational kids or adolescents, four different levels of intelligence and intellectual development and uh, matching the practices to those levels. And then there's a section that talks about metacognitive training and what needs to be done there and uh, things like that. And is that... Training is, working memory. Mm-hmm. Is that like a manual? Is that something that you can... So I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Probably will... We'll, Michelle Basante is the person who taught in the school system for, for about eight years. She developed a lot of the exercises. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jay Bas... Pissarra did it in a public school system with adolescents. So what we'll probably do at some point is the same thing we've done with the Mind Only website. We'll put a series of exercises on the website when the book comes out. So, Wow, that's awesome. And so that that is actually going to be a book someone can, can buy and start to put that into practice for their kids? Correct. That's fabulous. That's awesome. I think this is a good place to wrap up. I think so last just sort of general question. I would love it for you to just sort of lay out for folks how they can learn more about all this work. But before we do that, is there anything more broadly you want to say about these teachings and about, say, someone's listened to the to the show and their curiosity is piqued and they're really interested in pursuing Mahamudra, the path of Mahamudra, what would you say to them? Well, the pointing out way is a good overview of the path, at least on a conceptual level. 
if they want to see some of the more advanced teachings, they can read the Self-Arising Threefold Embodiment of Enlightenment and get an appreciation for the depth of these teachings. But other than that, the best way to handle these practices is to go to the mind-only website and see what we have there to offer in terms of the two-day performance excellence training, and one of those days is the entire concentration training path. Mm. And then there's the more immersion course that covers the same ground as what we would cover in preliminaries from a Western perspective. So that's the best way of starting. Everyone, I will link that up on the website. And if someone wants to come on one of your level one retreats, how, how often do you offer those and and how would someone learn more about that? Well, I'm offering them less than I used to because I have Parkinson's now, so I get tired when I teach. Yes. So we still offer about four or five around the world. There's, there's one that we do every January in Boston, in Newton. Mm-hmm. There's one I do every summer in my hometown of Gloucester, in usually August. There's one that we do in California in Watsonville in January or February. There's one that we do every year in Australia in March. There's one that we do in London most most years in June and July. So those are the main offerings, but I'm trying to do them more at home now because it's hard for me to do all the wear and tear of traveling at this age. Yes, that makes a lot of sense in Gloucester. Great, and would folks learn about that on your... Yeah, everything's on mind only, including linkage to these other sites. Perfect. And what about the books, also on mind only? The books are available through Amazon. Okay, great. All right, everybody, I'm going to link all of that up in the show notes for this episode. Dan, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and really laying this out for everyone. I, it's extremely compelling to hear you share about the path and I, yeah, I, I just, it's a real honor to have you on the show and and thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for asking such great questions, keeping us on track. Yeah. It's all about. It's a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, it's a blessing to have this time with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye everybody. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Daniel P. Brown. And I wanted to remind you that Dan is offering listeners of the One Mind Meditation Podcast a special discount on his peak performance concentration and meditation course. You can get that 25% discount over at aboutmeditation.com. Just head over to the show notes page for this episode of the podcast and you will find the special discount link and enter the coupon code OneMindPodcast. That's OneMindPodcast podcast. And you can find that over at aboutmeditation.com. So thank you so much. If you enjoyed this show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. I can't tell you what a difference that makes for us. Totally helps us get in front of more meditators. And every one, every rating, every review makes a huge difference. It's a, it's a, that's a huge way that you can help us. So if you're if you're moved to do that, uh, know how much that means to me and the team here. We really appreciate every rating and review. Okay, so let's round it out with a quote. And this one is from Bertrand Russell on what makes a fulfilling life. And he says... Make your interests gradually wider and more impersonal until bit by bit the walls of the ego recede and your life becomes increasingly merged in the universal life. An individual human existence should be like a river, small at first, narrowly contained within its banks and rushing passionately past rocks and over waterfalls. Gradually, the river grows wider, the banks recede, the waters flow more quietly. And in the end, without any visible break, they become merged in the sea and painlessly 
lose their individual being. The person who, in old age, can see her life in this way will not suffer from the fear of death, since the things she cares for will continue. And if, with the decay of vitality, weariness increases, the thought of rest will not be unwelcome. I should wish to die while still at work, knowing that others will carry on what I can no longer do, and content in the thought that what was possible has been done. Thank you.